Hi, everyone. Welcome to Reluctantly Adult, an advice podcast for people who believe they shouldn't be allowed to adult. I'm your host, Charmel Scipio, and I'm Reluctantly Adult. This month's topic is New Year's resolutions, and specifically, we're focusing on the New Year's resolution to lose weight, which a lot of people make every year, but they have a difficulty actually achieving it. For this episode, I decided to speak with Cassandra Bolding, a licensed professional counselor, about our mental health and how that relates to our ability to achieve our goals, Um, more specifically, um, the goal to losing weight. I think that when a lot of people are striving to improve their physical selves, um, rarely do we give a second thought to the mental hurdles that we may encounter. Uh, So in this episode, um, Cassandra gives us some good advice around uh, how you can overcome mental roadblocks that you may encounter and how to create supportive spaces um, where you can feel safe and you allow yourself to be vulnerable. Um, There's some really, really good advice and a great action plan in here, and I hope you all enjoy. Welcome to Reluctantly Adults. Um, Please introduce yourself to the people. Hi, people. My name is Cassandra Bolding, and I'm a licensed professional counselor here in the state of Pennsylvania. My office is located in the Mount Airy section of Philadelphia, and my practice is uh, inclusive. I work with adolescent through geriatric populations on various different um, issues. However, my areas of specialty are trauma and addiction. Mm -hmm. And that's perfect. That's one of the reasons why why I have you here. Um, Why why did you get into this particular field? Sort of what was it that spurred you into this? A number of things. I'm actually originally from Brooklyn, New York, Mm -hmm. and I grew up in the 80s era, so I'm an 80s child, 70s, 80s child. Mm -hmm. And um, during that time, as you know, the crack epidemic as well as the HIV-AIDS epidemic, you know, were at the height during that time, and there was very little that we knew about HIV and AIDS, Mm -hmm. and addiction was just running rampant in many communities. And Bedford-Stuyvesant community, where I grew up in, it did as well. And um, my brother was uh, infected mm-hmm. with HIV and subsequently developed AIDS. Mm-hmm. And um, during that time, I was in junior high school when he was diagnosed. Oh, wow. And um, I remember him. He was also um, a drug and alcohol user mm-hmm. and um, abuser dependent. And um, he was in a fight and he came home one day and his hands were bloody. And everyone knew that he had HIV. And so the fear that I saw in everyone's faces, Mm -hmm. you know, um, perplexed me because we were a very close family. Right. And so everyone kind of distanced themselves from him. And being that I was in school at the time, you know, my my school was very progressive. I was in school for intellectually gifted. And we were discussing those topics. We were discussing transmission, et cetera, and how you, you know, how HIV was transmitted. Right. So I understood that I couldn't contract it, you know, um, Otherwise, you know, mm-hmm. if I protected myself and utilized proper precaution. Right. And so I did. And I was able to help my brother. And that moment, from that moment forward, I understood the power of knowledge. Mm-hmm. I understood the power that I could wield with that knowledge mm-hmm. in terms of being able to help and be of assistance. 
And um, from that point, I started volunteering at HIV organizations. The Gay Men's Health Crisis was the first organization that yep. I volunteered my time and subsequently moved forward mm -hmm. um, from that. Because originally, I wanted to be an attorney. Oh, wow. And okay. um, my gears shifted, right. you know, uh, with that one experience. It was like the catalyst for me to want to understand more about addiction, understand more about HIV AIDS, mm -hmm. understand more about, you know, that pandemic at the time right, and, yeah. and how, you know, I could be of service, how, what, what I could do to change the course of how it was impacting my community, my family, you know, et cetera. So then kind of took off from that point. Absolutely. And um, originally I was in the addictions field heavily mm -hmm. and that was my focus and um, in conjunction with the HIV AIDS field as well. So given sort of your background mm -hmm. in, and just your, your life experience that, mm -hmm. that, has informed um, sort of how you how you crafted your your career and and basically your your life around this. Um, what what is your treatment philosophy? Because like you said, you you know went to a very pr progressive school. Mm -hmm. um, it was very uh, you know it, it was definitely something where top of mind of helping people that mm -hmm. that was at the top of mind for you. Um, so how do you take all of those things into your treatment philosophy and, and move forward? Uh, I would say my treatment philosophy is more so of a whole holistic, you mm -hmm. know, looking at the whole person, recognizing that it's not just a uh, pathology that you're sitting in front of. It's a whole person. Right. You know, this person has a family. This person lives in the communities. This person works in a particular field, et cetera. So when you're speaking to that person, you have to address all of those areas. Right. You have to address them mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, et cetera. Right. So that's pretty much my, my approach. That's awesome. So does does your approach, do you find, or have you heard that your approach differs from, um, you know, other counselors or, or other sort of, I guess, sort of mental health professionals in, in the way that you, that, that you approach people? I think that the field in and it of itself is, is, you know, I still think it's in its infancy and, mm -hmm. and we're moving in a more progressive direction towards that, that right. more integrative approach. Okay. So I don't think that I'm an anomaly. I think that my field, you know, gratefully is moving in that direction. So more clinicians, you know, whether they be therapists or medical doctors, et cetera, are moving towards that direction in mm -hmm. terms of integrating more of the what used to be the uh, alternative, you know, approaches into our practice. So mindfulness is something that we've integrated into our practice. Nutritherapy is something else that we're integrating into our practice. Mm -hmm. Understanding of the brain and behavior. So the field is really expanding and growing. So... What is nutritherapy? <laughs> um, therapy is an understanding of how nutrition and supplementation affect our mood. Okay. So, okay, so that perfectly kind of goes into what this month's topic is, which is basically uh, talking to people about how to help others achieve that annual New Year's resolution to, to lose weight. Mm -hmm. um, and specifically from a mental health point of view with me talking to you, because I feel like people forget that that piece mm -hmm. in, in and how important it can be when you are sort of beginning to lose weight, when you're in the process of losing weight, and perhaps when you've met your goal, mm -hmm. but sometimes your your mind has not caught up to the progress that your body has made. Mm -hmm. 
So to start out, uh, when, a, when a lot of people begin this journey, they start going like really hardcore. You know, they, they just, <laughs> they cut out all of, you know, mm-hmm. all the fatty foods. They, they cut out everything that's bad for them. They're going to the gym six or seven days a week, maybe sometimes twice a day in that mm-hmm. time span. And, you know, they can keep it up for, I don't, I, I don't even know what the statistic is. Maybe about 90 days or so mm-hmm. is, is about how long it goes. And then afterwards, it's just sort of like a downhill thing where they can't keep that up. Mm-hmm. So sort of what oftentimes is the reason that people kind of make that, that kind of hard line approach to it? And then why can't they keep that up? Hmm. Well, in my practice, um, I use a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. and um, basically the premise of it is understanding how our thoughts, how we define the experiences that we have by way of our thoughts, like Mm -hmm. what we tell ourselves about the experiences we're having, what we say to ourselves about ourselves in relation to others, and what we say to us about us, Okay, and how that dictates how we feel, and then thereby dictating how we behave. Mm -hmm. So... One of the things that I, you know, speak to people about when that's, you know, one of the issues that they want to address in therapy is understanding their definition, you know, like how they define, you know, themselves, you know, how they see themselves, what's their perception of themselves, Mm -hmm. and then understanding from that point their relationship with food. Okay. And, you know, why they eat Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, understanding the choices that they make in food and why they make those specific choices. Mm -hmm. And we discuss it from various different vantage points. So, as I said, you know, understanding the brain and behavior. So we understand it from the reward, you know, the the circuitry of the reward system in the brain Mm -hmm. and how food interacts with that. Very similar to drugs of abuse as well. They interact the same with the brain. And, you know, that addictive component to that. And then we also talk about it from the perspective of self-esteem, self-worth, you know, perception of self. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when that person looks at themselves in terms of body image, you know, et cetera, and how all those things are tied in together. And then, you know, I look at the other aspect of it, again, in terms of their association that they've made with food. For some people, food is a reward. You know, for some people, food is a way to suppress, to Mm -hmm. escape, to buffer feelings. You know, for some people, food is a way to suppress. Right. You know, so they're pushing down. As they're putting down that food, they're pushing down emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, so so it's understanding... First, what a person is hungry for. Mm-hmm. And, and more times than not, it's not food. Right, right. You know, so they're hungry for affection or they're hungry for adventure or they're hungry for excitement or they're hungry for something. Mm-hmm. And food is the most accessible thing that they can get. Right, that right. Der- they can derive that temporary emotional response that they're looking for right. from food. So right. it's just like the alcoholic you know, they can immediately change their state by picking up that drink or the person who's abusing drugs, whether they be street drugs or prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. It's a temporary fix, you know, to a more permanent, pervasive problem. Right. And so the drugs, the alcohol, the food is something that they find to be more accessible. So that that's a more, for me, it's a more integrative way of kind of understanding the whole, the whole issue with mm-hmm. food, not just I'm putting food in my mouth, but why are you putting food in your mouth? Right. And understanding that connection to why they're doing it so that we can get to a place where we can start to find some level of acceptance mm-hmm. and then take decisive action. So in, in sort of understanding, uh, you know, a, a food addiction, like you said, it's, 
it's clearly similar to alcohol or, or opiates or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but how, how does it manifest itself? Because you said that you, you kind of look at things from a cognitive, cognitive behavior standpoint. Um, but someone doesn't develop this sort of mm-hmm. overnight. Right. So, so how could it, it sort of manifest itself? Um, in, in different ways for people? Hmm. Well, I look at it from various different p- standpoints, mm-hmm. you know. So sometimes we have, like, binge eating disorder, which is something that's been incorporated in the DSM-5, which right. is a diagnos- diagnostic tool that myself and other therapists as well as doctors use. And, you know, binge eating disorder, then you have, like, anorexia, which most people are more familiar with. Mm-hmm. And in communities of color, many people aren't familiar with you know, anorexia, bulimia, and those things do exist in communities of color as well. And so understanding that, understanding what we're dealing with, Mm -hmm. how, as you said, how it manifests itself or the the symptom experience that that person is having, kind of being able to gauge what we're dealing with, Right. you know, um, number one. And number two, I think it's also understanding when I talk to people about food, it's understanding the origins of their perception of food. So for some people, food was used as a reward. You know, if you do X, Y, Z, we're going to McDonald's. You know, if you do X, Y, Z, you'll have dessert. So food was a way that they learned very early to reward themselves. Mm -hmm. And also as children growing up in our families, the big people, our parents are the people that we watch and we observe them and we interpret their behavior with our five-year-old, six-year-old, 10-year-old minds. And then we recruit create it. Mm-hmm. So we watch and we learn, you know, we look at the, you know, and if we talk about communities of color, if you look at food mm-hmm. and how food is kind of, you know, uh, utilized in our culture, it's, it's celebratory. So yep. we use food to celebrate, you know, we use food as reward again, you know, and food is, is about taste, right? You know, so, so a lot of times we learn to eat to live, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, sorry, living to eat rather, you know, like that whole idea that food has to be enjoyable. It has to be flavorful. It has to be seasoned. It has to be sugary. It has to be sweet. You know, so we learn things about food. And so we take all of that information and then as adults, we recreate that. Right. So it's getting back to that place where we can understand where those definitions or perceptions of food were derived and how we can work on creating healthier versions of that. So you mentioned that uh, a food addiction can can essentially be seen as an eating disorder, right? Or or it or is it is it actually an eating disorder? It's 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 a combination of both. Like when we talk about addiction, you mm-hmm. know, um, and we talk about addiction specifically, then we can differentiate that between that and an eating disorder. Because when you talk about like say anorexia or bulimia, they're associated with things as well. So sometimes when you look at the bulimic, you can also, you know, go back to that person who, you know, definitely issues self-esteem, self-worth, but then there are also sometimes where you see there's a sexual trauma that's transpired or some Mm -hmm. other form of trauma and the binging and purging is found seen as a way of cleansing oneself or removing, you know, and the anorexia could be utilized as a form of control. Like everything else in my life is out of control. I can control what I consume. I can control whether I consume food or not deprived or not and and then it can be also associated with body dysmorphic disorder you know so that person having distorted perception of their their body Mm -hmm. and so deprivation is used as a way of controlling that but then when you talk about addiction and and like for me when I work with uh, my patients I look at addiction as an umbrella Mm -hmm. 
and we talk about like what's underneath the umbrella. Okay. And so it, it can be transferable, you know. So I've I've worked with many people who have, you know, I've started out working with them, say for alcohol dependence, mm-hmm. and then as they embark on their abstinence and then recovery process, then we see other things manifest, right. like right. gambling addictions and like food and like sexual addictions, etc. So again, like what I said earlier, that you know when we look at addiction, we're looking at using an external measure mm-hmm. to fix an internal problem. So, you know, it could be food, it could be, you know, so it's whatever, it's that thing that's accessible that that enables that person in that moment to derive that temporary, either, you know, suppressing of, escaping of, or derive this feeling of mm-hmm. excitement or comfort or whatever it is that they're looking to derive in there, getting it from either the food, the alcohol, the, the sex, the drugs, the gambling, the shopping, right. et cetera. Yeah. So how can... How can someone identify whether or not they actually have a food addiction? Because I would say, you know, an alcohol addiction Mm -hmm. or a a drug addiction or something like that, those are kind of obvious. Like, and there are some people that may be better at hiding them Mm -hmm. than than others. Um, But I think as time goes on, it, it becomes more apparent that that someone has a problem. Mm -hmm. However, with food depending on the manner by which you relate to it, mm-hmm. however you're eating it, however, you know, however it's coming together for you, it may just seem very normal to other people. They may not even be able to pick up that there's something happening for you. So kind of how can either a, a, an individual themselves identify that there may be a problem or someone looking from the outside in mm-hmm. understand that there, there may be a problem with someone. So if we're talking about food addiction specifically, then I think there's usually some external manifestation, just like with any other addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the unmanageability that happens in one's life, you right. know, as a result of it. There may be some health issues mm-hmm. that result from this, you know, um, food consumption or either... It doesn't necessarily have to be the amount of food being consumed. It could be the type of food that's being consumed. I see. I see. And so it could be some some type of manifestation, whether internal or external. So external could be the weight gain, you okay. know. And so that could be, you know, something that could be seen by someone else, you know, that this spike in weight, mm-hmm. you know, either way. Mm-hmm. And then also looking at the health issues, mm-hmm. you know, implications like we look at like diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And as result of, you know, this person's diet, the way that the food that they're consuming and how much they're consuming, how often they're consuming it, when they're consuming it, the type of foods that they're consuming. And so once that becomes manifest, like, you know, if there's like either the weight gain, you know, the obesity or again, the health issues that rise from it. And Mm -hmm. then that person's inability, you know, to be able to modify or change their eating habits mm-hmm. as a result of whether it's the obesity that can lead to other health issues or the health issues themselves, right. then that's indicative of there being, you know, a problem. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so how, if someone can identify, like I, I have a food addiction, like how can we sort of help them overcome the stigma of that? Because even even saying, like, I have an addiction to X, like, no matter what it is, even if it's something as seemingly innocuous as having, like, a shopping addiction or mm-hmm. something like that, there's this stigma that we have toward it that, that makes it seem dirty or that makes, it se- makes someone seem sort of broken. So 
how can we sort of help them cope with that? Because it, unfortunately, it's not a situation of if you in, like if you encounter a stigma, it's it's when mm-hmm. and sort of how can they they help overcome that to, to ensure that they can seek out help to, to move forward. I think that the word addiction in our society has been so misused mm-hmm. and overused, mm-hmm. you know, and inappropriately used. Right. Um, that, again, like you said, there's, there is a stigma attached to the word in and of itself. I think, like, when I work with individuals, um, especially because I, I have a um, an addictions group mm-hmm. that I facilitate weekly, and one of the things that we talk about is the disease model of addiction. Okay. So, you know, like many of the 12-step fellowships, so Overeaters Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, et cetera, they use the disease model. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, what I kind of do with it is I I speak to them from the place of if they were diagnosed with anything else, you know, like if if you're diagnosed with diabetes, would you be ashamed? If you were diagnosed with high blood pressure, would you be ashamed? Right. You know, and understanding that with any diagnosis, you know, there are symptoms, Right. Mm-hmm. That would be indicative of you diagnosing that particular disorder or whatever right. it is. And there's a treatment. Right. And so that's kind of I, simplistically I, I break it down like that so that that person can see it as a disease. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at it as something that I'm being diagnosed with and as it's not who I am. Because right. Many people associate themselves with it. That becomes their story. That becomes who they are. You know, um, and so I think that that's part of it, too, being able to differentiate oneself from the experience that they're having. Right. And helping them to be able to identify the causal factor. Why? Why Mm -hmm. am I doing it? You know, what's my association that I've made with food and how can I make a better association with it? How Mm -hmm. can I define this experience that I'm having in terms that are going to be empowering, inspiring, as opposed to leading to more self-deprecating dialogue, you know, internal dialogue and, you know, lead to that that, you know, them kind of continuing to spiral. Mm-hmm. And so like you you said on in the onset you you spoke about um this kind of rigid approach like kind of diving in and yeah. you know de- this complete deprivation like you know I'm not going to have any of these things mm-hmm. and you know I'm going to work out 6 times a day, 6 times a week and I'm going to you know work out 2 hours, you know, a day, etc. And I think that finding a more balanced approach mm-hmm. is also something that that I would kind of introduce to that person if they were coming in and talking to them about finding ways to change their, you know, definitions of food, of, you know, body image, of weight, et cetera, all those things. So mm-hmm. it sounds like you have this sort of approach where you, you're essentially tell, giving someone the, the permission to say, okay, like, this is something that happens. Like, mm-hmm. first and foremost, let's accept it there. Right. And then let's sort of answer what may have led to this happening? What could have been the, the causation for it? Mm-hmm. And now let's address how we're going to help you, you know, cope with it going forward and, and sort of live with it and then eventually maybe heal yourself from it. Right. That inherently sounds like you're saying, like, you need to be able to let yourself off of the hook. Right. And, and you need to, to kind of have some, uh, some semblance of, of self-compassion. Mm-hmm. This is not something that is inherently sort of connected to addiction or or someone who is desperately wanting to lose weight. Mm-hmm. So how do you work through those things with people like that? Mm-hmm. Um, 
because there there are people that have very negative viewpoints of themselves if if they're overweight or what have you and they feel like self-compassion is not inherently something that they deserve right well one of the things and I'll I'll start with this um I use three A's, awareness, acceptance, and action, Mm -hmm. you know, becoming aware, you know, and like we said, understanding, you know, what caused it, you know, my perceptions, my definitions, my associations that I've made and becoming fully aware of those things and then finding some level of acceptance. Mm -hmm. And as you said, you know, basically letting yourself off the hook. Mm -hmm. And I think, and then the next stage would be action, like being able to take real decisive action, you know, from a balanced, you know, perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, this this whole idea of having this punitive measure, yep. you know, and having to be harsh and, you know, critical and all these things are the very things that are counterproductive mm-hmm. to being successful mm-hmm. with any any endeavor that you're embarking on as far as, you know, any type of self-improvement, et cetera. You have to have compassion, mm-hmm. you know, with yourself. You have to find a level of acceptance with where you are right now. Mm-hmm. You know, because most times people are looking at what they want to be the 45, 65, 100 pounds later. Right. And then I can accept myself. Then right. I can, you know, be acceptable to the outside world. Mm-hmm. But it's finding that that compassion, finding that acceptance here and now. Mm-hmm. And that be your ground, that, that point that you start from, your ground zero, where you start from is accepting who I am, where I am, accepting all the decisions and choices that brought me here to this place. Right. And finding acceptance with that. And, and the acceptance isn't, you know, an agreement with what's transpired or, uh, you know, uh, an acceptance of the state that you're in, like being happy with where you are, like whether you're having physical or health issues, et cetera, is accepting that this is where I am. This is right. the reality of what is. Right. And that's what, you know, that's the work that we do. And that's the most difficult part is the acceptance of the reality of what is the decisions and choices that I've made in my life up to this point Mm -hmm. is why I've arrived here. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I I can speak for myself. Mm -hmm. I don't don't know about my listeners, but I can speak for myself in that um, sort of self-compassion has been something that I have always battled with mm-hmm. um be it around either you know weight loss or or just in general around sort of my approach to being successful mm-hmm. um my sort of I, I'm one of those people that believe like fear is a great motivator which is which is horrible <laughs> like I get that it's horrible but to, to some degree like it's true mm-hmm. but also sort of denying someone something is also a great motivator to, mm-hmm. to kind of push them to keep going. So for me, I could do something and I'm like, eh, it was okay. Like it could have been better. Like I should have done better. I should have, you know, waken up earlier, worked harder, you know, gone to bed later or something like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas I talk to other people and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, that's crazy. Like this, this is amazing. You did a great job. Mm-hmm. And, and I just have a hard time with accepting that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've, I've been to a therapist, I've talked to her about it, and there would be times where we would make great strides against it, and then I would just totally come <laughs> back to it and just be like, I'm a terrible person, I should mm-hmm. be better, you know, and it kind of comes back to, you know, how can someone who, who struggles with self-compassion sort of fight off 
thinking about what they should or could be doing mm-hmm. um, rather than accepting sort of where they are. Like how, how can you push back those, thought, those thoughts of should or could mm-hmm. and just kind of work with where you are right now? Well, one of the things is understanding where that voice was mm-hmm. born. Where did it come from? You know, many times it's a voice of a parent or mm-hmm. bullies, you know, or what have you. And sometimes what we do is we continue mm-hmm. using the same, you know, critical, judgmental language in our own voice. Right. You know, and if you say it enough in your own voice, you'll believe it. Right. Right. Yeah. That's so true. it's it's understanding, you know, whose voice is this? Mm-hmm. You know, being able to hear the critic, you know, the censor, you mm-hmm. know, the judge inside and being able to then challenge that. Okay. You know, being able to challenge. So I, I have, you know, the, my, my clients, you know, they always laugh because I have this little folder that has these worksheets in it. So whenever <laughs> they see the folder, come when they, they drop their head like, oh, here we go. But I, I have, you know, these worksheets that I give them on challenging negative thoughts. Okay. You know, like asking yourself some questions about these blanket statements that you make that you've accepted to be truth. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, so am I making this statement without having all the facts? Right. You know, how true is this? You know, and are there... You know, is there evidence to the contrary of this thought that Mm -hmm. I'm having? So, like, finding specific ways to challenge those thoughts that you have as opposed to accepting them as truth, you know, as we sometimes do, you know. Um, So being able to challenge those negative thoughts. So I think that that's a more, for many people, that's a more realistic approach for them as opposed to the magical, you know, positive affirmations. You know, if they don't ring true to you, then they're not going to stick. Right. And so many people start off with this, you know, magical way of thinking that, okay, you know, I'm going to say these positive affirmations and it's going to magically change how I see myself. Mm -hmm. I think that affirmations in and of itself, you know, without having a foundation can kind of fall flat. But I I think understanding, you know, what you're saying to yourself Mm -hmm. and being able to, you know, hear like being able to identify what you're saying to yourself and start to challenge those things. Mm -hmm. Like realistically ask yourself questions about the things that you're saying to yourself. Right. You know, and being able to, because I have um, also, I use what's called a mood and thought log. So I have people identify the thoughts, like what are they telling themselves about the experiences Mm -hmm. they're having? And, you know, what is the emotional response as a result of what they're saying to themselves? So they can actually see the connection between when I feel motivated and focused and I have clarity and when I don't right you know what am I saying to myself what's the difference in the thoughts that I'm thinking because then that puts that person back in the seat of control Mm -hmm. and so that's where sort of the mindfulness comes in Mm -hmm. of of being aware of what it is that you're thinking rather than sort of your thoughts essentially running amok in in your head and 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 you're not being in control of those things right I'm a person that is not comfortable with mindfulness, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Um, it, to me, it, I don't know, like it, it feels very earthy, crunchy sometimes. <laughs> like, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't feel real for me to sort of have a thought and to actively, actively stop that thought mm-hmm. and to, to essentially address to sort of address it and unpack it as it's happening. Right. Um, I don't feel equipped to do that sometimes. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily feel like I have, like, is there a checklist I should be doing right, or right, something right. like that? Um, it, it, because it, 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 it feels weird because mm-hmm. you usually don't, you know, you usually don't go through those things. Right. Um, 
so to me, it's it's hard to kind of do that. So how can you guide someone through, you know, becoming more mindful around, especially around the thoughts that could be, um, you know, harmful to them as far as not being compassionate to, toward themselves and, and sort of, you know, giving themselves a break and, and helping them kind of push down those those bad voices mm-hmm. and kind of amplify the good ones that they have. Well, one of the things that um, many people say when they sit down, look, I can't monitor my thoughts all day. <laughs> you know, I look, I don't know how to do that. It's too many thoughts that I'm having. Yeah. But I think that the place to start is with what you, what are you feeling? Mm-hmm. How are you behaving? You know, that's evident. You can see that. Right. You know, you can see your behavior. You right. can see when you're reaching for that bag of chips, when you're trying to, say, you know, lose weight or you know, adopt a healthier lifestyle mm-hmm. and you're reaching for the cake and the chips and the candy, that's a behavior. If right. you rewind back, what am I feeling? Right. You know, then you kind of get in touch with what I'm feeling in that moment that's driving this behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, and then if you go even, you know, further back to the thoughts, right. you know, what am I telling myself about, say, this experience that I had or like, say, if I feel like, you know, I didn't do my best mm-hmm. or if I don't feel um, like if I'm thinking um, something about, myself like if I'm saying something to myself about myself in relation to someone else like right. maybe I'm not as good as or someone's better than or whatever or I'm saying something to me about me you know then I can understand like how these things that I'm saying to myself mm-hmm. are you know um dictating the behavior and driving dictating the feelings and driving the behavior right you know, so that way I think it's an easier, you know, approach mm-hmm. than kind of trying to monitor your thoughts because we have so many. That's why we have right. a conscious and a subconscious state because we ha- we're exposed to so much and we're doing so much that, mm-hmm. you know, it's impossible to monitor your thoughts. But you can monitor what you're feeling. You That's can true. monitor your behavior. Right. You know, so those are things that I kind of get people to shift their focus, not to, you know, what am I thinking, but how am I feeling? Right. You know, what am I doing as a result of how I'm feeling? Okay. So that, so everything that you were just talking about is all internal focus, Mm -hmm. internal focus and and sort of internal influences on how we feel and how we approach ourselves. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do is sort of pivot and, and talk about some of the external things that could could also be coming in and and feeding into some of those voices Mm -hmm. and specifically what comes to mind, especially as if if we're talking about people who, you know, want to lose weight and that's something that's top of mind for them, uh, sort of in this society, we have this, this strange obsession with what's called like weight loss porn, Mm -hmm. which is essentially popular TV shows like the biggest loser or my 600 pound life or, um, extreme, weight loss where you seem you see these people struggling with this and, it, and it's in its genuine sort of struggle and, it, and it's genuine pain that they have around this but it's put on display for us to kind of stare at and gawk at um and and those things that are being said about those people sort of also get taken in by people who may feel that same way about themselves sort of what can folks do to to sort of separate themselves from that and, and not allow that to, to infiltrate them? Um, because I think that as someone who who wants to lose weight, you see these things and sometimes it's like, oh, well, maybe I need to do that. And other times it's just like, 
why should I even try because of the bad things that are being said back toward those weird experiences on television. Right. I, I completely agree with what you're saying in terms of one being, you know, in the position of viewing all this and internalizing this mm-hmm. stuff. I think that, and, and one of the things that we talk about um, in session is um, the supports that people have, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes it, it may not be a buddy, an accountability partner, or a workout partner, you know, just having individuals in your life that can be supportive. Right. You know, um, so I, I, I definitely am a an advocate for um, creating supportive spaces, Mm -hmm. you know, an individual creating those supportive spaces by, you know, through therapy, through group therapy, Mm -hmm. sometimes through fellowships, like 12 step fellowships, like um, Overeaters Anonymous. um, And there are several others, you know, out there as well. There are other other support groups. There Mm -hmm. are other running groups. There are other exercise groups. There are uh, these almost like it insulates that person from Mm -hmm. those things, you know, because they're putting themselves in a supportive environment and you are in control. You're in the driver's seat of what you take in. Right. So being very mindful with what you take in, being very mindful with who you put yourself around, being very mindful with, you know, your own internal dialogue, Mm -hmm. you know, as well as, you know, with the interactions that you're having with other people. So those are the things that I think are helpful Mm -hmm. in steering that person in a direction where they're able to create more supportive framework around, because, you know, there's a lot of negative, um, there's a lot of negative stereotypes, right. you know, when we talk about weight, you know, and there's a lot of unrealistic, you know, um, projections that we see, uh, you know, of, the, of these supermodels and other mm-hmm. people who are way thin and not very rarely seeing realistic, you know, women, like right. women with real bodies, right. you know, women with real bodies, you know, that have real interests that are seen as beautiful, attractive, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we're not exposed to those images as often as I think we should be. Absolutely. So I think that we can, you know, be in control of that as well, you know, like creating those images for ourselves. So that leads me to ask sort of where do you stand on social media yeah. as <laughs> as being, you know, a vehicle to toward those those images because it's like it's like dancing on a pinhead with it sometimes I think it's an uh, there are I I will say this you know to have a balanced view of it there are some positive Mm -hmm. you know um images that you see on social media Mm -hmm. as far as you know women like actual women and you know there are um curvy women and yoga there's i mean there's so many things out there that you see on social media as well but then i think there are also the unrealistic portrayals Mm -hmm. you know that you see of you know these people who you know are and i don't mean to say these people but these portrayals of how can i say this um I just, I don't want to sound negative what I'm saying mm-hmm. about social media because I think that it has a very, a, a lot of positive points as well. Right. I just think that there are many aspects of it that portray unrealistic views yep. of, you know, life, you know, just cookie cutter, you know, so people are posting pictures, but you don't know the life of the person behind the pictures that are being posted. Sort of like that, that fast forward kind of, right. kind of view exactly. of, of whatever has happened. Exactly. It's, it, it's not the full picture right. that you're getting. And so I think that that's, that's the thing that for me is lacking with social media is that you're not getting the full picture. Mm-hmm. You're, you're seeing, you know, all of these, the, the, 
the better aspects of who we are that we choose to post. We're right. not seeing the full picture of the person or their life or the challenges that they may face, mm -hmm. you know, along with the triumphs as well. So I think that it's not a balanced or full view of what's happening. That's, that's fair. That, I, I think that's fair. I, I think that that goes into, I think that supersedes more than just sort of the, the weight loss category. Right. I think that if you take a step back and you look at social media over, overarching, mm -hmm. um, I think that is, that is very true. You sort of don't know the circumstances by which that end photo that you see right. was created exactly. or, um, you don't understand sort of how or what is happening that someone, someone could wholly be curating their life to, to create these sort of images that essentially you're taking in and saying, I should be doing something different right. or, but you have no idea what they did to exactly. kind of get there. What their challenges are and the challenges that they faced. Mm -hmm. And I mean, these may very well be extraordinary, you know, triumphs or, you know, things that they're doing in their life. Right. But then it, I think that the part that's missing is the challenges that they face and how many, you know, um, failures, you right. know, they had to, you know, experience to get to this place of success. Mm -hmm. And, and knowing that I think the full picture, and I think that that's where vulnerability comes in, our right. ability to be vulnerable, to show all of who we are is something that I think social media robs us of. And just mm -hmm. that whole, like the, the, not just social media as far as the, the Facebooks and the Instagrams and all that, but I think that, you know, the media in and of itself mm -hmm. robs us of the full picture, the full journey, you know, the fact that we can be fully and wholly human and it's okay. Right. You know, that we can make mistakes, that we can gain an extra pound, that, that like all those things that make us human. I think that that's a thing that, that we're being robbed of and that our youth is being robbed of the ability mm -hmm. to see that that we are fully and wholly human and that's right. okay and that that incorporates everything mm -hmm. you know our mistakes our failures our confusion you know our triumphs all those things are included in the package and that sometimes i think is is something that's excluded from those absolutely yeah. i mean honestly that's why i took up the mantle of this mm -hmm. of this podcast because i recognize that i'm not the only person that doesn't that feels like they don't know what it is that they're doing. Right. I'm, not, I'm not the only person. However, there is a vulnerability in asking the question right. because in asking the question, you're being seen as someone who either doesn't understand or doesn't know or just could possibly be out there flailing and, <laughs> and, not, and, and, and genuinely sort of, you know, kicking under the surface of the water like a duck, like crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but no one wants to be seen as that vulnerable, vulnerable person. I think it's because of how we define vulnerability. Um, Brene we Brown as, has as done like yeah. amazing work with, you know, vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the thing that's missing, you know, the missing link in a lot of the things that we've discussed today, you know, the vulnerability, the ability for us to allow ourselves to be confused, allow ourselves not to know, to allow ourselves to accept right. ourselves where we're at right. and recognize that it's okay and allowing other people in our lives. Like, you know, with what I do in terms mm -hmm. of therapy, you know, I'm meeting people at the, in their most vulnerable, fragile states, right? you know, and, and they're honoring me with being there with them mm -hmm. to witness 
what they're experiencing, to witness their journey. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful experience. Right. It can be painful and difficult and confusing and maddening and all those things, but it can be a beautiful experience as well. You know, and I think that that's, that's part of, like I said earlier, like what's missing, I think, in mm -hmm. this process. And, and in this, this topic of like weight loss and, you know, how we perceive ourselves, et cetera, I think that it, vulnerability, the ability for us to truly see and accept ourselves mm -hmm. as we are, where we're at, mm -hmm. you know, and accept how we got there. <laughs> right. You know, and, and accept our behavior, right. you know, et cetera. And I think that we, we, can build from that point, mm -hmm. you know, a really solid, sturdy foundation for a healthier lifestyle and learning how to eat to live, mm -hmm. you know, and that food is fuel for our bodies and changing how we see those things. And, right. You know, and also I, the other thing that I wanted to mention before we ended was, mm -hmm. um, with many people, when we talk about weight loss and we, you know, we talk about like, you know, I just want more energy to go to the gym or I'm not sleeping, et cetera, right. like going to their, their medical professional and, you know, getting the blood work necessary to identify whether or not there's any medical reasons right. why, you know, they might be struggling with issues around their weight. You know, for some people, they can have hypothyroidism and that can impact, you know, how they you know, how their metabolism works and right. how they're able to lose or gain weight, you know, and then, you know, there are issues around like, say, vitamin B deficiency, iron deficiency, et cetera, that mm -hmm. can affect their energy levels, which, mm -hmm. you know, impair their ability to get up and go and go to the gym and work out, right. et cetera. And then depression, you know, is also something that can make someone feel lethargic, you know, mm -hmm. and kind of zap them of the desire or ability to get out and go and, you know, exercise and, you know, also the self-deprecating thoughts that are definitely indicative of depression. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are other things that can be um, barriers to an individual in their weight loss journey or mm -hmm. in their journey to create a healthier lifestyle and understanding what those things are and being able to address those things specifically can right. also help that person to be successful in the long run as well. That's awesome. Like, I, I think that's very, like, good advice for people. So... I just want to say, like, what what I want to ask sort of what would you say to someone who is nervous about starting their their weight loss journey for fear of maybe failing or just they're just they have this anxiety and, and they're anxious about it. You know, what what would you say to kind of help them calm down and, and sort of take that first step? I would ask them their why. Mm hmm. Because the why you want to do something is that thing that will propel you into action if you can make your why compelling enough to you, okay. making your why big enough and compelling enough. So I sit with people and I ask them why. You know, give me the reasons why you want to do this. And let's make these reasons compelling enough to you and big enough where it's going to propel you to act. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you can get a person to talk about the implications as far as their health, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, their desire to be around for their children or their grandchildren or to, you know, to... Um, their desire to say if they're pre-diabetic, they're uh, pre-diabetic or what have you, like, how can I get to a place where that's not an issue or right. if I have high blood pressure, et cetera. So getting a person to identify the reasons why they want to do it, I think are the things that I've seen beyond anything else that has helped to propel people beyond the fear, beyond the trepidation, beyond all those things mm -hmm. to get to that first step. 
you know, so that why has to, why you want to do it has to be big enough for you. So it can't be superficial because the superficial stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, is that stuff that will propel you for two weeks and then right. the rest of the year. You know, so it's really getting a why mm-hmm. that's going to be compelling enough to you to propel you to act in the long run. Okay. Yeah, I, I think essentially superseding vanity kind of mm-hmm. for your overall health and, yeah. and just hoping that, that that will spur you on rather than, you know, just this one-time deal kind of thing that seems very far off and right. intangible. Like we essentially you want to create sort of tangible reasons exactly. that you can continuously revisit as uh, motivators for yourself. Exactly. And getting that person to connect with, like if we're, if we're talking purely aesthetically, you know, getting that person to connect with, well, what do you like about your body? Mm-hmm. You know, and having that person to really connect with those things because initially it's like everything is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and 145 is perfect and everything about me will be perfect at this weight. Right. You know, but recognizing well, what do I like about myself now? Right. You know, and having that person connect with that because only through self-acceptance and developing self-acceptance, self-love, of, you know, compassion, all those things, are, those are the things that are going to propel you mm-hmm. through, like, when, you're, when you feel challenged, you know, and it gets mm-hmm. difficult, and you feel those pains the next day, and, you know, when you want a cake, and yeah. you got to eat a celery, and, you know, all those things, like, those are the things that keep you moving, that mm-hmm. keep you motivated, not the self-deprecating, judgmental, critical things that we say. Those are the things that discourage us, right. you know, and knock us out of the race, you know, but the things that propel us and keep us going that Mm -hmm. fuel are those things are the why are the you know the things that about ourselves that we that we like and that we accept and Mm -hmm. that we we're okay with you know like I like my eyes or I like my legs or I like my neck or whatever it is but getting that person to connect with those things is something else that that I also do when we're working together around that Mm -hmm. is getting them to connect with those things everything isn't wrong is it no, yeah, it's I like hope getting not. them right yeah. and getting them to kind of connect with the things that they like, the things that they're o- they kind of okay with, mm-hmm. you know, and getting them to kind of you know capitalize on that and start from a strength base because many times we start from a place of deficiency. Right. You know, we find there's more deficiency, but if we start from a place of strength, we can build on from the little strengths to the bigger strengths, mm-hmm. and and I think that that's the thing that's more of a motivating factor than the deficiency based stuff that we do. That is awesome. So. For my last question, um, as we're wrapping up, it's the signature question of the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I like it because I think it forces people to kind of think about, you know, where they've been and and sort of the experiences that they had and really draw on that to to give some solid advice. Mm -hmm. So um, and and essentially to draw that advice from mistakes, which I don't Mm -hmm. think a lot of people tend to do. but my question is, what is the best advice that you have never taken? Hmm. <laughs> the best advice that I've never taken? Never taken. Yeah. Like, okay. you know that it <laughs> like, yeah. Like, what's, what's the best advice that you've never took? Like, you, you just were like, nah. Hmm. Okay. Um, for me, I... I can't think of the the exact words, so I'm going to kind of paraphrase. But I had a mentor tell me years ago to acknowledge your successes. Acknowledge Mm -hmm. your successes, you know, before you move on to the next thing. Acknowledge your successes. Because then your successes can, you know, you can can strive for more or, or succeed at more. Something to that effect. 
But that was something that I never took. Like, it's like I, I'll complete something. Like, I, I'll do a research study or I'll do something and I'm on mm-hmm. to the next thing. Right. You know, and I don't, I find that sometimes I don't really have the opportunity to acknowledge what I've accomplished mm-hmm. and to allow that to be the building block for other accomplishments or maybe to expand on that particular accomplishment before I'm right. off to the next thing. Right. So I think that that's, that's the big piece of advice for me that I I was given and I still remember it as I'm moving on to the next thing and not acknowledging it but that's the I think one of the biggest pieces of advice that I I didn't take cool I I mean I I have that same problem too so you know just it's just sort of one of those things where you're like yeah I did it yeah. So what? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Checked yeah. it off the list. Yeah. What's next? Now I'm going to the next thing. Yeah. No, I, I wholly <laughs> get that. Um, Cassandra, thank you so much for joining me on Reluctantly Adult. And I really appreciate your being here. It was a pleasure. Thank you so very much for having me. Oh, it was awesome. Thanks. And that's it. Um... I don't know about you guys, but I feel like Cassandra gave us a serious word uh, in this podcast. Um, For me personally, my major takeaway was uh, treat yourself to kindness. Uh, You know, it's really important that you, you know, focus on the positive things about yourself instead of focusing on the bad or the negative things and appreciate and accept um, the good things about you. Um, and where you are right now. Um, Thank yourself for getting you to wherever you are currently and, you know, have faith in yourself that you'll get wherever it is that you feel that you need to be. Um, I don't know if anybody could tell, but I was really, really nervous in some of the different areas that we were talking about because for a split second, I thought that Cassandra was going to turn it around on me and just be like, so what are you feeling? I'm not, I'm not equipped to have this conversation right now. No, I just, um, maybe later, you know, maybe, maybe off air. Uh, not right now. Thanks. Um, but you know, I, I want to thank Cassandra Bolding so much for, uh, being on my show. I will have her information available on the site. Uh, for anyone who is interested in reaching out. Also, you can find the TED Talk for Brene Brown um, about vulnerability. Also, um, a link will be on the site. Um, I want to thank Christopher Davis for my intro and my outro music and the amazing Ken Griffin for my incredibly dope logo. Um, So let me know what you thought of the episode. Uh, You can comment on the website at www.ireluctantlyadult.com or you can follow me on Instagram at ireluctantlyadult or on Twitter at reluctantlyadlt or you can email me at ireluctantlyadult at gmail.com. You can also find me now on Facebook. There is a page for that. And you can also subscribe to the podcast officially on iTunes. I am so official right now. I'm so proud of myself. Thank you so much for listening to Reluctantly Adult, and I'll see you next time. Thanks. That is growth. That is growth. 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 Oh, girls, that's gross.
So, girl. 